Bonjour tout le monde. What's going on? Welcome to the Too High Podcast. I am Seth Kalina alongside Deontay Lee. D, what's going on? Not much, man. Uh, making my New Year's resolutions that I'm sure to break by mid-March. Um, other than that, man, like turn of the new year means that there's a lot of stuff that's going to start happening in terms of my football life again. Uh, we were just talking. Um, I was just talking with one of our bosses about you know, the combine and draft process and all of that. And it's crazy to think that that's this close, but we are at the end of the regular season and the playoffs are coming. So we get what feels like you think it's a break for about 72 hours. And then you realize the fact that almost 80% of the news, the actual news that goes on in, in sports happens in the off season. So, you know, it's going to be transitioning from one grind to the next. How's everything with you? Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I'm, very upset that you've brought this <laughs> these, this news upon me because <laughs> I was having a good day until now. But yeah, get, you know, transitioning to to being draft analyst is it has its moments, um, and yeah. getting to like kind of like go back in and and watch film, you know, especially for teams in college football that uh, I didn't have a chance to watch this year. You know, That's last year I was part, doing yeah. yeah. Last year, I was fully immersed in college football throughout the season and then kind of had to go back and rewatch everything because now, the, you know, watching it for one thing, um, you know, to know to learn about what's going on in season is very different than watching it for a specific prospect or something like that. So this year, being that I'm more focused on NFL, I can go in kind of fresh um, be like, oh, I don't even know anything about Tulsa. You know what I mean? Like I did last right. year. I don't know anything about whatever team like I did last year. So I'm actually... I'm actually excited for that. Um, I'm not excited for that. I don't know why I said that, <laughs> but it is something to do with my time. Um, uh, I mean, and, uh, to me, the 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 best part about it is that a lot of names that I've maybe had mentioned because we obviously speak pretty often with other guys who are maybe even more active in this, like on a week by week basis than we are. So they're like, there are definitely some names and some people that I'm like kind of passively familiar with but don't really have the greatest grasp right now on who they are. So like, that's always cool is you kind of go through these processes and you're like, Oh, okay. I see why, you know, three months ago in October, this is why you guys were banging the table because you had this, whatever, two or three game stretch where it looked yeah. like this, or, you know, I can see why this cooled off for this player, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll, it'll give me at least kind of a, a cool little um, retrospective type of look. At, uh, at what was going on in the season. Uh, yeah, and, and we will, you know, the Two High Podcasts will transition to uh, doing a lot more draft stuff when the time is right, you know, after the Super Bowl um, to keep you guys um, caught up and give us and give you guys our perspective on that, which might be a little different. It might be as basic as, I don't know where it's going to go. It might right, be the most knows? basic thing of all time, or we might right. give you the most in-depth stuff and you'll have to listen to find out. Uh, anyways, let's start with uh, what's going on right now. And the first thing we want to talk about is Antonio Brown leaving the field in a, in a, um, in a fit uh, in the middle of the Bucks uh, comeback win against the Jets. And, I, you know, I'll let you – I don't really want to talk about, like, the potential issues that he is going through because I don't think that's fair to him. I don't think it's fair to put some, uh, you know, mental illness or disease on him. That's not true because I don't think that would be fair to people who actually have those mental issues if we're just going to go willy-nilly and throw, throw terms on Antonio Brown. Um, so I'll let you decide if you want to talk about that, and then if not, we can go right into the football aspect. Um, I think I'll just touch on it really briefly and then kind of push forward from there because I think it's it's just as poor form to be heavy-handed in response to some of this stuff as um, what I think they're wrong, the wrongdoing on the other end might be. Like, And in the digital sports media landscape, the one thing that I always have to be mindful of is there are certain perspectives or certain takes or certain you know people that exist within this space that maybe get like an outsized representation um, of whatever it is that their beliefs or their statement may be. So I don't want to act like the entire football world was saying something. And it may have, when it may have just been that I got a lot of it on my end, in my little corner of this space. Um, but I think that my biggest problem, well, my two biggest problems is that, A, it feigns concern when you mention, you know, somebody may be suffering from a, a certain episode that might be tied to um, a mental disorder 
um, or something like that. So that's number one, is that a fan's concern? And then number two is just extremely indelicate. And I think those two are kind of married together in a lot of ways. Um, I, I just think that there's no reason the moment of or right in the immediate waking moments of that for anybody to be making mention to any kind of like disease of the brain, any kind of disorder, disorder of the brain or of your, your functioning abilities. I think that that's, it's just awful form to me. It does not come across the way that you guys think it does. It does not carry the humor that a lot of people think that it does. Um, there are a lot of people and this might just be like my own biases being in the sport, um, not only on the analysis side, but obviously within coaching and working with young people and having a face with parents and speak with people who may have some skepticism about the sport. Like there's a time and place to have conversations about some of the realities of playing a collision sport um, and, and some of the effects that that can have on the body. I am obviously a testament of that myself uh, as somebody who played, you have played, um, a lot of people at our company have played a lot of people who interface with football in general um, have the kind of passion that they do because they have some kind of experience as a player um, at different levels. Um, and there's some honesty to be found in talking about the effects that it has on the body. But that's something that you talk about kind of in the macro sense. That's not a conversation that you have when somebody is tearing their shoulder pads off and then maybe doing jumping jacks in the end zone and waving goodbye. Um, we don't even have all of the details of the story, you know, and we all have to kind of use our own discretion and what it is that we decide to believe. Um, I saw a clip that went out with Ian Rappaport um, earlier this morning, kind of explaining maybe more from the AV perspective of, perspective of things. And, you know, we'll see whether or not that's borne out as true or, you know, has a majority of the truth in it um, because there's always like two to three sides to every story. Um, but just specific to the comments on CTE or somebody's mental health, um, or whatever the case may be, I think that there are ways that we can have that conversation that does not have to be the way that we kind of jokey jokey. Oh, ha ha. He had another episode um, on the field. This is somebody we know that has a pat certain pattern or behavior. Let's make mention of that. Um, I think that that's it's, it's improper. It's improper, mostly because there are probably a lot there. There may be a lot of people who are veterans of the sport or people who played other combat sports um, or people who, you know, for all for all we know, may have served in the military, things like that, that might have certain behaviors or certain um, symptoms um, of a mental disorder that does not manifest itself in that in that way. And I don't want to tie I don't always want to tie whatever the most extreme behaviors are to something like that, because it, it's just indelicate. There's a, a wide spectrum of ways that we can interpret what uh, Sunday's behaviors were without jumping to the CTE thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's really all that I had to say on that. And I would like yeah. to go back to football from there. Well, I'll just say what I kind of what I said before, what is just, just like every time we every time we just lump something on someone um, because we want to we want to pretend or, or we, we want to believe that we, we were deeper. Oh, he did jumping jacks in the end zone. Therefore, I know right. that he has. And then every time we do that, it diminishes the issues that people who do have. That, I'm not saying I don't know if Antonio Brown has these issues or not, but it, the, the people that we know have these issues, it diminishes what they're going through every time we do this. And that's not fair. It's not it's just not fair to these people like at all. Um, to right. just be like, ah, yeah, that CT, CT, CT. All right. On the football field, the Buccaneers have now lost Chris Godwin a couple of weeks ago, and now Antonio Brown. I, I think we're all assume. I mean, uh, Bruce Arians said he's not on the team anymore. Right. I think it's over now. I mean, it, nothing would surprise me given Tom Brady's relationship with the guy, but yes. I think we can agree that I, it's most I likely. I think that, that that felt like the end. It, it yeah. seems like the reporting around it was that that decision was made basically at the moment of that outburst. So, yeah, I think it's finished. So, you know, I, I guess the cons and, uh, you can go on pff.com and you can find the article I wrote um, just detailing some of the options that the Buccaneers are going to have in the receiving core and how that's going to work out. But um, your thoughts on, you know, who they are now, uh, what they can do offensively without having uh, those two players. Um, I mean, to me, it's like some of the concerns that you saw in that Sunday night game against the Saints, right? Like it just puts so much on the shoulders now 
of Brady and this offensive line almost more so than Brady to like protect everything up. So that way he has the time that he needs to be precise with receivers that can't win um, against single coverage or can't find the open areas in space or don't have the same kind of chemistry with Brady that you would expect of, you know, your Godwins, your Browns, um, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen what the, we've seen what just not having Rob Gronkowski did to this offense yeah. earlier in the season. Um, they kind of had to change a lot of their identity around when he wasn't available as it was. So um, I think that this offense is built very specifically in mind of having certain guys in certain spots. Um, that, I mean, that is kind of the Arians offense, right? Is that it's all about having the ingredients for it in order to push the ball down the field in order to be as downhill in the run game as they want to be. Um, so there is some reason to be concerned. I mean, and obviously having to take it to the very end, you know, the whole Antonio Brown situation aside, having to go down to the last drive in the last minute of the game against the New York Jets is not the greatest indication at the end of the season that things are going great. Um, so I think that they are probably, they're definitely not the machine that they might've looked like when they were winning a bunch of games early in the year. They're obviously, I, I don't think, I think it's just as obvious that they're not the team that just struggled or, or had to go to the very end with the Jets. But um, I do think that this kind of puts them right in the exact same tier that the Cardinals, the Cowboys, yeah. um, the Ra- and the Rams are in, right? Where it's like, okay, which one of these teams is actually good enough to really face off with what we've seen of the Packers this year and give them a game? I think that they're right in that kind of 1A or maybe tier two with those other teams in the NFC. Um, yeah, I think that like finding players to fit those roles is going to be very difficult for them and the two roles that, that they, that they've lost now. And, you know, I said this before, but I felt like Godwin is the key to the whole offense. And you can see how a lot of teams would line up when Godwin played, you know, in the slot, which is his preferred position. And, and ways that they would try to bracket him. With the Saints, we talked about it a lot. Um, I even saw the Bills do it too a bit. So teams are were always going to try to deal with Godwin in certain ways and not let him get these one-on-one matchups with, with linebackers underneath. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. And we saw the Saints just not play stubby slash bracket for the right. rest of the game when he got injured. They just felt right. like, well, we don't need this anymore. Yeah, let's not play cover one now. Yeah, like we're good. And so, you know, what they've done so far is put Tyler Johnson in the slot. He is not a bad player. But are you going to get this? You know, Brady's always needed that, that short option runner. Is he that type of player? You know, they ran a couple of routes. You got some separation, but you're talking about the Jets here. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know going forward if that is, if that's a real option for them, that's who they're going to play unless they find that maybe let's go back to Scotty Miller, who has barely played this whole season Mm -hmm. um, and let him run those routes. I think they're going to give Tyler Johnson a chance in the slot, but it's very different. Right. And now all of a sudden you can, you can hold, you know, we talked about this with the saints. It's like the saints were playing Malcolm Jenkins on top of those slot formations at a very low depth, right? In terms just to keep everything in front, but you could play behind them. Well, they don't need to do that anymore, right? You can play with one high safety deep. You can, if you want to play like cover two, whatever, like deep quarters, whatever. And you can, you can probably get away with some stuff because are you worried so much when you get that slot receiver, if it's Tyler Johnson or Scotty Miller singled up on a linebacker or an, on, on any type of good matchup that you think is a good matchup, like is he going to win consistently? And is he going to catch the ball and get yak the way that Chris Godwin can do it. So that, that was, that, you know, that's the first thing is inside teams are going to be uh, um, a lot more um, that the playbook opens up for those teams. I think a lot more uh, defensively. And then on the outside, which is where Antonio Brown played. And again, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to like, <laughs> we're going to end up like praising Antonio Brown here, but we're going to try and keep it on the football field. Because, you know, I rewatched the game where they played against the Panthers two weeks ago, you know, no Mike Evans, no Godwin, and just Antonio Brown. And you remember how good of a football player this guy is on the outside, Uh, just always winning one-on-ones on on the outside, you know, always getting singled up. And one of the cool things, I mean, this isn't really related to anything anymore, but one of the things that was always great about Antonio Brown was how he could push you vertically on the outside and still get separation underneath. Because 
if you're like running like a, a crow route or a comeback compared to like a six yard hitch route, anything under 10 yards, if you're running a, like a quote unquote static route on the sideline, you have the chance that a zone defender can come underneath you and take you away. Once you push vertically past 10, it's one-on-one. And he was always so good at winning those one-on-ones, even for a smaller player down the sideline where you couldn't give help to him now. And once you could give help to him, it was over. You were cooking. You saw it in the Panthers game a lot. So now who takes those routes? They tried – uh, Cyril Grayson, who has 11 career receptions and nine of them have come in the last two weeks. Right. He had a good comeback. It was an okay route. I thought he, you know, they caught a, a comeback on third and 20. He, uh, um, he gets they, that over the top shot at the very end of the game, you know, on the fade or whatever. Yeah. When they co- kind of busted, I just, yeah, is that enough coverage bust than anything? Yeah. Like, and so it's like, well, that's your guy now on the outside running those type of routes. I don't know. I mean, you just got to assume that, and maybe he blows up. Like, I don't know, but yeah, you just knows? have to assume that a guy who's been on practice rosters for the past five years is not going to blow up in any meaningful type of way, which puts a lot of onus on Mike Evans. Yeah. That's, I mean, him and him and then this offensive line in the run game, yeah. like this changes the dynamics of balance. I think that, you know, it's funny. We continue to bump into the same kind of themes that we've been talking about both in the college and the NFL level uh, throughout the off season in the year, right. Is like, the dynamics of balance change based on what you can and can't do in the passing game. So if you don't have the same kind of verticality in the passing game, if you don't have a a top flight slot and two outside receivers that can work through the entire route tree, that does change what balance looks like within your offense. So, you know, now it becomes a matter of like, are you managing first and second down now instead of attacking the way that we know that Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich has wanted to attack since Brady's been there. Um, and what does that do to the offense? Like, to your point, now on every third and six, does like the whole stadium is going to know that you're working the ball to Mike Evans because that's basically your last ball winner. Um, you know, because they don't necessarily have like running backs who can kill you on screens or as yak guys on checkdowns or anything like that. So that is that is a concerning thing long term. When you think about a team like the Packers, who's at the class of the conference right now and the way that they play in coverage. I'm, if I'm if I'm a Tampa Bay fan, I've got to be looking at like we want to end up on as far away, you know, the opposite side of the bracket as possible from Green Bay, because that is a kind of defense that a can cover your guys. They have a number one corner that can deal with the Mike Evans that can allow them to do what the Saints have been doing to them, which is play super tight in the seams and those underneath areas. Um, and that becomes an issue. And then they've got these big, you know, these humongous pass rush types on the interior that can do what the Saints are doing as well, right? Which is like just affecting the pocket so that way Brady doesn't have perfect rhythm uh, stepping into his throws more so than trying to get sacks. Um, so that, yeah, if I'm looking at that situation, I, I want to be as far away from the Packers if I'm the Bucks as I can be right now. I think that let's say we take the Packers and the Bucks. And we look at the fact that the Packers don't have a ton of secondary receiving options outside of Devontae Adams. I think if you were going to pick and let's say, um, you know, let's say Adams is a tier one receiver and let's say Evans is a tier two, but pushing tier one type of receiver. Right. And honestly, honestly, he might even be a tier one receiver. Right. I'm not even, I don't even I care. Say, I'm not going to argue. I'm yeah. It's like, whatever. They're both that. really, really good. Yeah. You would probably, if you're going to pick a one type of receiver to have, you would probably say, I want Devonta Adams as my one, one, one guy. Whereas Evans is a great player, but I don't know how much offense you can run through him. That is my concern. And another thing that I looked up before was, you know, he's one of the best over the shoulder catches type of guy, put him one-on-one, let him just go throw it up and let him go get it. He's been kind of okay this year. It's been his worst year in terms of making those type of plays in his whole career. So now, you, you know, that's going to become a big part of their game. And if, and if they're not hitting those plays, which they haven't this year, that, that can be concerning, you know, and, but I do think, I, I do think Evans is more than that. He is a really good receiver and they line him up in the slot a lot and they do a lot of stuff with him. I just think like that concerns me if they're not going to hit those. Now it's Brady and Evans, they can start hitting those and you wouldn't be surprised because they did last year, but you never know. And the thing with Gronk is like, you know, he's hot and cold. He's a Hall of Famer. When he's hot, he's 
he's, you know, great. Weeks 13, uh, sorry, 12, 13, 14 looked great. Remember the Colts game? I think there was a couple other games in there. It looked really good. All of a sudden, now you're bringing him up in the pecking order. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing the Saints game where Evans and Godwin are out and he has to be a playmaker. It didn't happen. Didn't and then you're happen, seeing yeah. the Panthers game where it was just him and AB. didn't really happen. And then you're seeing again in the Jets game, he made a really uh, classic Gronk catch over the middle. But besides that, you know, it, it hasn't been there. So I just wonder if, yes, he can be a really great third receiving option. I don't know if he can be a really great second receiving option in this, in, 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 in 2022. Right. Um, I wouldn't count it out because he is a Hall of Famer, but it, it would concern me. Yeah. I mean, again, it comes down to what you're asking of a guy, and it's, it's too much. Mm-hmm. It's too much. Like, not every, he has passed the point in his career now where you can ask him to slide, to slot himself up, you know, one to two spots in the pecking order. Um, again, and it's because a lot of it is like, not being able to create yardage after yardage after he gets the ball. Like if you can't create offense after the fact, like it, it, it's going to be a struggle it, right now, knowing that there's not enough offense coming from other places. Um, so yeah, that, that is, you know, I, I don't really have much to add to what you were saying. Like there's, they're in trouble, quote unquote, tr- as much trouble as you could possibly be for an offense that has Tom Brady in, in Bruce Arians and Byron yeah. Edwards calling the plays. You know? Yeah, let, 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 let's keep it real for a yeah, second. Yeah, I'll say we'll like, keep everything win in the this, proper perspective. If they win the Super Bowl, no one is saying, oh, my God, look at this team. Right, yeah, I'm not going to be like, I could have never seen, <laughs> seen a world where this could happen. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, yeah, there's still Tom Brady is still there, and the scheme is good and everything. Everything has the potential to be still really, really good. All right, let's stick on um, receivers. But let's talk about the three first round, or sorry, three early first round rookie receivers, um, because Jamar Chase has another like insane game, and I think you know I saw the tweet and I tweeted about it being like, well, it was so obvious that Chase was like the best receiver and he's proving it, blah blah blah. And it's like, love Chase, he's been the best receiver, he right. should be rookie of the year, no yep. problem with that. My concern is let's not count out. Jalen Waddle and Devonta Smith, considering the environments that they have just played in for a whole season. Jalen Waddle is not being used properly. He's having to do it and he's still having success. But if you put him on a different offense, it would look a lot better than playing with Tua and the RPOs. Right. And then, you know, the same with Devonta Smith and Jalen Hurts, who's just like, they've been really good recently. Obviously, all the, the big win streak. Jalen Hurts is not Joe Burrow. Right. In terms of the passing game, obviously, the, the, the Eagles have done some really great things in terms of getting Hurts comfortable and, and running an offense through him, but in different ways. And so it's hurting those two guys, whereas, yes, Chase is amazing. It's 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 unbelievable. However, let's not discount those two other guys just yet. Yeah, when I look at those the three receivers, like my number one takeaway is how much usage matters for receivers, um, you know, kind of building out these quote-unquote archetypes for receivers, right? Like when you look at Chase and the way he's being used is basically like a ball-winning, true outside receiver, vertical tree. I think I, ju- I joked with you right before we started the podcast that he's running the old Baylor Baylor University route tree where it's like goes, speed outs, hitches, and screens. Like everything is off the vertical tree from deepest to shortest possible route, Um you know, we talked about his average depth of target being at 14 yards, which is north of the other two guys that were being considered here, like far north of both of these guys. Um, and then you look at like just his production on goal balls alone, like 17 catches, 36 yards per catch, seven touchdowns on goes by itself, like over 600 yards and seven TDs would be good rookie production period yeah. for a wide receiver, even an early round wide receiver. The fact that he's doing that on one particular route um, basically be like the most the most effective go ball receiver in the NFL right now. Um, there's there's not there's not much to say about that. Like he he's just been able to go up and win at the highest point, and it definitely runs completely counter to some of my concerns coming in. Um, a lot of this is just a credit to their timing between Burrow and Chase, uh, and he's just gone up and, and beaten a lot of good coverage, right? Like it's still it doesn't make it any less of a high variance play. Like it's completely possible that 
you know, they run into this in one game samples, and this can certainly be something that happens over a season-long sample, right, where the goal ball is just not there in the same way. Not saying that you never completed or that it never goes for as big of yardage, but he's been so good with that that that's kind of separated him from a production perspective from the other guys. Um, when you talk about, like, a Devontae Smith archetype in comparison where he's kind of like a technician, you know, like five different routes that he's received at least 10% of his targets on, and on those routes he, he's had 46 – 46 receptions for 627 yards and four touchdowns. So again, to that point, like very productive as a rookie receiver. I think if you're look if you're looking at him and what you would like to see, it's like more yak opportunities, right? Like that was the big breakout thing for him at Bama before he came to the before he came to the pros and why he won the Heisman was what he was able to do after the catch. It's not just getting open. It's not just having a ton of receptions. It was being able to take these catches and turn them into much more. Um, that was the biggest growth in his game, and I do want to see that from Philly. Whether they can get to it or not, I mean, I don't know. I'm not so concerned, and you kind of mentioned it, I'm not so concerned with talking about what Jalen Hurts isn't as a quarterback right now because they found a way to make it functional. Um, and Smith is not hurting as a receiver. I just want to see more, right? Like I, That's it. I just want to see more of it. And then you compare all of that to Jalen Waddle, and this is something that I'll kind of talk about. Um, later on in the week, especially when we meet again to do the next episode of the podcast. Um, all of the work that they're making him do underneath, it just leaves so much to be desired in terms of his, like, yak opportunities, or his explosive play opportunities. Like, only 10% of his routes are coming off the vertical tree, so your goes, your posts, your corners. On the underneath routes that we, that we chart, your hitches, your slants, the flat routes, the screens, it's already got 57 targets on those, and of his 346 yards, 205 of them are yards after catch. So clearly they understand that they want the ball in his hands to be able to create offense. It's like push it further down the field. It doesn't always have to be deep comebacks and go balls, but the over routes, you know, deeper curls, scheming stuff up and play action game, if that was a big part of their offense, that would be great for a guy like Waddle. Um but I do, but they leave so much meat on the bone because of their specific offensive approach, because that's how they feel is, you know, the, the necessary uh, course of action in order to make Tua a viable quarterback right now in his career. So, you know, I think that Chase is probably the one guy of these three that you can say is completely being maximized right now. But you can kind of see all the little pieces of the archetypes of these receivers um, and, and, and where the growth opportunities are, specifically for Devontae Smith and, uh, and Jalen Waddle. And, and I'll say one of the funny things is if you put, if you keep um, Chase in this Cincinnati Bengals offense, but you change the quarterback, same scheme running the same routes, but you change the quarterback, you're not seeing the same player. Like, sorry. Right. Because Burrow throw trusts his receivers on the sideline one-on-one, unlike almost any other quarterback in the league right now. Like he, you play with a low safety and it could be cover four. I don't, he doesn't care. If your safety is stopping his feet, even if he's on the half field, you are getting a deep ball thrown on you uh, to the sideline. And that plays into Chase's, is his things. And like, even if a quarterback knew that's how good Chase was, there aren't many quarterbacks who just say, fuck it. I'm throwing the nine ball on the sideline right. or the back shoulder. You know right. what I mean? It's like Rogers and Brady and, and him. So it's like there just aren't a lot of guys. So he's being maximized. <clears throat> I think with, with Chase, I always said this, there was no in-between with him. When you watched him at LSU, it was either going to be this, which is a bully, an absolute bully, catch point bully, line of scrimmage bully, um, not running a ton of routes, not getting a ton of separation per se, uh, you know, especially against man, but just – winning on every single catch opportunity or it was going to be like in kill Harry Nikhil Harry, right? Like the, the opposite was always, there was never going to be like just an okay receiver who was doing like that, his style of play. And always, this always happens when it hits, which it has with chase. We look back and say, well, duh, like, oh, duh, obviously, didn't you see him at LSU? And it's like, yeah, but that style doesn't always work out. And honestly, it flames out a lot. So, uh, like, whereas, yes, he was wide receiver one for me. And he's, like, one of my favorite players of all time. But there was always the potential that uh, it was just not going to work out and it was going to look really bad 
um, where we, we've gone down the path that it's looked incredible and the, the, the Bengals are for freaking champions. Um, yeah. And I think with, you know, talking about Waddle who I've seen a little bit more than, than Devonta Smith, it's just like, you know, especially you want to see him on these play actions, get, get his speed open down the field, running, whether it's a crossing route or running the post route or running the corner route on these, on these, on these play action concepts, but you don't get that from a shotgun play action team as much. And that's who the dolphins are. So like, you know, you'd, you'd like to see him just in a more man, like traditional offense. And it's like, it could work. Now I, maybe that's, maybe that's a little too harsh. Cause I think like the quarterback play, him not wanting to push the ball down the field is really the main issue here because even on the non RPO throws too, it just doesn't want to push the ball down the field. So it's like, well, okay, I guess I just see a lot from Waddle that we saw in Alabama, which made him a top pick. So I'm like, I'm not worried about him, but I think that it's, it's the same argument that, that we're, you know, we're going to come back full circle. The environments have made these receivers look a certain way. Yeah. I mean, and, it, it's really it, a lot of this kind of just centers on, I think how probably the both of us feel about Waddle, you know, like yes, even with Smith, yes. it's like, I I want more for, I want more for Devonte, but I still think that they're getting plus production out of him whenever they can get him the ball. Right. Like, and, and obviously they found a lot of, they found enough success on offense to where they've kind of lifted themselves above really having to talk a whole bunch about um, what is or is not, you know, right about this offense in the passing game. It's just with Jalen Waddle, like I've got to see more than the slants, the hitches, you know, the flat routes that might turn into a wheel every once in a while and your screens and things like that. Like there's just more to be found from him um, as a wide receiver, especially once you get the ball in his hands. Or like that was a game breaking thing about Alabama, right? That you you literally could not afford for this guy to touch the football further than 10 yards down the field because there is no guarantee that you're ever going to touch him uh, once he has it in his hands. So I want to see more of that. I, I don't know how Miami is going to be able to get to that or even intimate, you know, and the idea of that because of all these RPOs and the tight splits that they have to play with and the personnel that they have to play with just to try to create like a halfway decent kind of half-hearted attempt at threatening at the run game. Like, that's not really what they're running these RPOs to do because they don't believe that they can run the ball in the first place anyways. And they're not good when they hand the ball off. Um, And we're seeing this like against Tennessee, we've seen it, you know, against teams that have played more of the too high stuff against them. Like all of a sudden when you start taking some of that stuff away, if you can take away a player like Waddle just by as easily as playing regular old quarters coverage, then you're never going to get the most out of a guy like that. Um, So that's really my concern. It's just like the function of, the function he has within this offense, um, I think, just holds him short of what we could be seeing of him, you know, as a player. Um, and hopefully we get to see them grow on whatever it is that their identity will be offensively because the NFL needs to have a, a game-breaking talent like that at wide receiver, get all the touches that are possible. Yeah, I am uh, on board with that. I think the thing with the Dolphins that I think is going to be interesting is, like, they're going to try to – make the O-line better. You know, they haven't hit on any picks, almost any picks. They're going to try and do it again, whether it's through free agency, whether it's through the draft and the offseason. I don't know if that fixes Tua, though. Right? Because, like, you know, and you know, going back to Burrow, it's like, it doesn't matter about the offensive line with Burrow. He's going to try all these throws. Like, the, like the, the type of quarterback he is is irrelevant to the offensive line. He'll just get sacked a little bit less. But he's always a bro still has a high sack rate and he always will have a high sack rate, but he's the way where he targets players on the field is never going to change. So I wonder if you're talking like, well, we'll we'll upgrade the offensive line in Miami and therefore everything will look better. Yeah, everything could look better as a whole, but I don't know if Tua changes that much because I think at this point we kind of know who he is. Now, if it clicks in the processing, if he gets a little more accurate, you can have a good quarterback there. But, uh, it, it, you know, well, I mean, we've been saying it for um, two months now, but it, it is a little worrisome in, in, in Miami. Right. Um, so let me, I guess we'll kind of close this topic with this question. Like, who, if you could swap any of these guys for another one of their situations, which of them do you think you could do it for and they stay as productive mm-hmm. or become more productive? 
Yeah, I probably say Waddle in in Cincy is is yeah. is hell of a player. Yeah. I think that's the question. I think it's obviously different because you're talking about two different positions. You know, more of a slot yeah. guy versus an outside guy. But even um, but let's that, say I let's think... say he, he replaces like Tyler Boyd or something. I was gonna like, say you're like, fine. Like that's good as hell, man. <laughs> you're good. Sets that they have yeah. around, like you could very easily just say like, okay, T Higgins is X now, like. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. You know, like the the, the Bengals have just such a nice complement of skill sets around Joe Burrow that, yeah, I could absolutely envision them dropping Waddle in and saying like, hey, instead of just being completely 11 personnel shotgun spread, we'll play with tighter splits because this guy's maybe a little bit smaller, even though he can win against press. And we'll just manufacture over route, over route galore. And the second you start squeezing in on those, that's when we'll take our deep shots to yeah. T. Higgins type. So, yeah, I would say, I mean, it's not just Waddle, because I think if you drop Devontae Smith in and he replaced Tyler Boyd in the slot full time, that you'd be looking at a high level of production from him as well. So, yeah, I think. That, but yeah, but, but I will say if you dropped if you dropped Devontae Smith in and you replaced him with T. Higgins because he's more of an outside guy. Right. That that I don't think works as well. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Because I, again, I, because I, of the way Joe Burrow likes to play quarterback, he probably needs a tall body. You know, he needs yes. Jamar Chase on one side and he needs a Terrence Mark Terrace Marshall tall body on the other side. Right. right? Like that's right. That's what we remember. Right. All right. Uh let, let's get on with it and uh, let's let's get into in my opinion, my favorite um segment that we do here. And that is of course who is the best bad cornerback in the NFL right now? <laughs> of course, sponsored by PFF. Okay. Uh, right now you can go on and get 25% off any PFF subscription. If you use promo code too high, T-W-O-H-I-G-H, grades and data are live for every single player who logged a snap last week. What can you get with PFF subscription? You get me and Deontay, and really that's all that matters. <laughs> that's it. And you get all the betting stuff. Uh, you get, um, you know, all the articles, all anything you want from pff.com uh, player prop tool, which is really good. Uh, and yeah, support the pod. Use promo code too high T W O H I G A for 25% off any sub. Honestly, you should have already used promo code elite up 50% last week, but you can still go on 25% off any sub. All right. So who is the best bad cornerback in the league? Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lee. You had a day yesterday on Twitter trying to um, defend your stance on Trevon Diggs. You have as much time as you'd like. Have fun. Go at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do I start with? Okay. So the number one thing I will say is like, I'm going to focus this in on one particular topic within Trevon Diggs, because I think that it's the most indicative of who he is as a player right now. And that's how he plays in man, right? Like the one thing that we know about Dallas is when they want to play good coverage, they're going to play cover one. There's going to be a safety in the middle of the field and they're going to play man everywhere else. They've built this entire defense around rushing four, you know, or rushing five. With, with so say, I, there are five. I feel like they're a big five man, man. At, Five the, at this point now, yeah, it's like yeah. basically like bear rushes, like yeah. bear rushes and playing cover one, like a very classic, you know, style of defense. Um, so I, in order to, and I, I kind of tweeted and hinted at this yesterday while I was just being absolutely bombarded with Cowboys <laughs> fans. Um, but I, I looked specifically at the 36 corners that play, that have played at least 100 snaps to cover one, right? Like I feel like this is a good enough sample at this point in the season I think this is representative of what you would consider to be your elite peak level, you know, corners playing man coverage, right? So of that, 36 guys, he ranks 30th in coverage grade. And I'm only throwing that up up front because I know that people get very uh, particular about our grading system. I'm just throwing that out there so that way you guys understand where he stands in terms of PFF coverage grade. But even if you want to look at other metrics, you have the most first downs allowed in man. Is the third highest first down and touchdown percentage allowed. The most yards allowed per snap and per coverage target in cover one. He has the most 15 plus yard receptions allowed in cover one. He has the fifth highest open target rate in cover one. Um, his, his yards per catch allowed is over 20 and it ranks second most. You know, like I, I will recognize the fact that he's second in picks in cover one. That's awesome. But if you look at this in totality, the entire picture, um, what this debate ultimately comes down to, to me, is like whether or not you believe that interceptions are a skill or a trait. I don't know that. I, I think the interceptions are an outcome. I don't believe that. Certainly not for cornerbacks. Right. I'm like anything. It's an outcome because you, 
your ability to get interceptions is not wholly independent on your ability to catch the football, right? Like it does require some cooperation from the offense. Now, like there is, I do subscribe to the belief that there's a difference between turnovers and takeaways. And some of his picks are impressive. He has some of the best interceptions this year. So it's not just volume. He has a lot of high quality picks as well. And it's not, and my argument isn't like take away the picks. Leave, leaving the 11 interceptions that he has exactly where they are and still taking in the entirety of the picture does not paint a picture of a defensive player of the year candidate. It paints a picture of a corner that's getting burnt often, but also catches the ball when it's thrown his way um, a decent amount of times. Definitely more than what you would typically expect of a corner that plays as much man as they do. But that doesn't mean that he's playing well in coverage. It just means that he's forcing turnovers. Um, you know, I, I don't think that you would ever say that Charles Tillman, who I loved as a defensive back, that you can derive value of, you know, his skill set as a DB because of his ability to force fumbles. That is one thing. His ability to force fumbles is an outcome of plays, and it is a skill set that he, he was able to build over years. But that's independent of what's actually happening when the ball is in the air. Um, he's not a good cover corner right now. It's not to say he will never be. But if you're looking at like some of the rate metrics and where he ranks amongst his peers, it's what he's having one of the worst seasons as a corner in the NFL. He just happens to force a ton of turnovers, which has its own value. And, and you know, you want to make sure that you're reflecting that value in your analysis. And I would never, you know, kind of turn a blind eye to that. But that doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to all the other stuff, because everything else I detail does not paint the picture of a guy that would ever win defensive player of the year. Um, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with it. it for you, you know, you're kind of like a, a neutral observer here. One of the people who was kind of chuckling as I was trying to pin <laughs> all these people off. Um, is there an argument that you see that that has merit on the opposite end? Um, or really, is there a hole in the argument that that maybe that I'm making? You know, I talked about well, this with Sam. Um, you know, Steve is the guy who on our side that put up the initial tweet that I was kind of bouncing off of anyways, like. Is there a hole in the argument by pointing some of this stuff out? I think that I'm okay with, like, I don't know who I would vote for. I haven't even thought about it for, like, Defensive Player of the Year or whatever. But I would be okay with voting for him as Defensive Player of the Year in a year where he gets, you know, double-digit picks and returns them for touchdowns and blah, 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 with, the, with knowing that it ain't going to happen again. Right. And when it doesn't happen – He's he can't be on the field. Right. But I'm okay with voting it for one year because I do like these like narrative based, like giving awards to like nar- these kind of narrative based awards rather yeah, than 100%. all being statistical. I'm, so like I'm no, okay I can, with it, but I, like, can buy I agree with you. He, it's, I can buy it's a problem. That. It's a problem. Uh, he's not right now, just not a good corner. And our friend uh, Nate, uh, not Nate Tice, um, the other better Nate, um, said, uh, <laughs> said, it's funny. I'm I'm not quoting verbatim here, but what he said was the same things that get him interceptions are what get him beat. That gets bad, him beat. Yeah. bad eyes, bad leverage, yep. and these type of things. Um, I mean, you could probably speak on that a little more than me, uh, knowing a little bit more DBs. But I thought that was a really interesting comment from uh, uh, Nate uh, Nate James. Yeah, I mean, and like. There's a lot to like about his athletic profile and the way that he uses it when the ball's in the air. Like when you see him making plays on the ball, he looks like a wide receiver that was converted to DB. Like he has great tracking skills for the most part. I'm um, at least like when the ball is within like his catching radius. Um, I do like the way that he's able to go up and high pointed. Then obviously he's a great playmaker once he catches the football. We've seen that in some of the pick sixes and his ability to accelerate and get away from guys you know, and be a playmaker with the ball in his hands. Like that, I am not trying to rob him of any of that at all. Um, And to your point, like I can buy into the argument of like the idea of giving, getting a double digit interception season is so rare, especially now in the context of this passing NFL, where everybody is super precise and turnover worthy plays seem to be shrinking all the time with veteran quarterbacks. Uh, We're getting the ball out super fast. Like, it's changing the way that we contextualize pressure, how efficient, how efficiently teams are passing the football now. So I'm all for saying like, hey, man, like we don't have a guarantee that we'll ever see another double digit interception season. So if you want to honor it in that way, I'm not mad at it. 
to your point, what you finished it with is kind of what I'm banging the drum on is like, this is not repeatable performance. That's the it's problem, not predictive man. performance at all. And you, and all of the things that we typically use to find predictors in year to year performances all suggest that the second, and I mean the second that this guy is not forcing turnovers, he's going to start looking like an unplayable starting corner. That's what all the data says. Like, Maybe like it'll be better, but it's aggressively bad right now. Like uh, Stephon Gilmore, no matter what, whether he got interceptions or not, was locked, was a good cornerback. Right. And then he had the season where the interceptions got a started coming picks. and you get the award. Um, but like it was all the predictive measures were always going to be there for Stephon Gilmore. And he was always going to be a lockdown corner. Um so yeah, I, I, I'm in agreement, uh, and I, again, I always I'm in agreement, but I haven't like really sat down and watched him like you have. But like, yeah, it's not the 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 stats are just not good enough um, going forward. Again, they're going good forward, enough this season, right. and maybe he winning. gets another pick six. Maybe they beat the Eagles on a pick six on on, right. on Saturday night, and and he they, that wraps up the award. Like that's fine, whatever. I don't care. But um, yeah. Because also, like, the thing with the Defensive Player of the Year award is that it, every year it should go to Aaron Donald, and that's it. I was like, going to say, so, yeah, if we're being honest. Like, yeah, we're talking about, like, LeBron James and the NBA MVP, right? Like, every year you can close your eyes and be like, well, did he play enough games? Well, then he probably won the – he's probably the best player on, on yeah. the field. So that's kind of where we're at with it. But, again, to your point about narrative, kind of basing this more on the story. How do you tell the story of the NFL season? You can't that's tell it. this season's story without mentioning the fact that something happened that we haven't seen since the 70s. Good with that. No problem with that at all. I'm just saying, like, if we're trying to evaluate what he is as a corner, specifically about his skill set as a corner, not as somebody who can catch the football, there is nothing in his statistics right now that suggests that he is at that top echelon of players at his position. He hasn't been that. And some of the things that are plaguing him in coverage when he's not forcing turnovers are the same things that we were talking about uh, when he was at Alabama and some of his struggles. Like it, it, it just does stick out to me very clearly that LSU Alabama game and what Jamar Chase was able to do any time that he was being guarded by Trevon Diggs. Like it, he did not have a great time. Um, and we've seen it even when it wasn't a guy that ended up being the obvious rookie of the year. Um, you know, once he hit the pros, like he has struggles. It doesn't mean that he's a horrible player. Like, I'm not saying that. He has skills that are valuable. A lot of them are what ends up leading to the interceptions. It's just in its proper context, like if we're being completely honest about what this guy has and has not been this year, I don't see it. I just don't see it in terms of like repeatable performance. And if anything, it's more likely that you continue to have years where he's bumping up against a thousand yards in, rece in reception or receiving yards than you are getting years where he's a, even nearing double digits and in interceptions. That stuff just does not travel from year to year. All the data says that this, this and fumbles is pro are probably the two most unstable statistics that we have in football, yeah. right? Like turnover, turnover variance is always all over the place and there's no guarantee that he's ever had an opportunity to catch the ball. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm in agreement with that. Uh, let's finish off by flipping gears a bit and going into uh, a great segment that we do every week called Rematches That You Hate to See, uh, presented by uh, Western and Southern. Um, want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast, whether it's football success or financial savvy. Winning starts with asking us questions. Would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al Michaels on Sunday Night Football or Mike Tirico. Uh, how about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Every submission earns you a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to $2,500, coordinate your order from a restaurant near you and have it delivered on February 13, 2022. And don't forget to check out the Chris Collins with podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for the answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, rematches that you hate to see. Well, Alabama is going to be taking on Georgia for what feels like the 900th time in the past five years. Uh, I think they played now three SEC championship games and oh, right. two national titles. Yep. 
and one or two regular season games in yep. in three years, in four years, since 2018. Yeah, yeah that sounds right. That's so here we go again. All right. So now that we have had a chance and we talked about it, um, first of all, whoever's listening and who was part of the, um, the two high spaces we did at halftime of the two semifinal games, uh, shout out to you guys. It was super fun. We're going to do it again uh, during the national championship game. But uh, we might do it again during the halftime of the LSU Kansas State game. I didn't I didn't mention that to you, but that's I think I'm thinking, do you want to <laughs> I just saw that LSU was playing a bowl game without a, without a scholarship quarterback. <laughs> oh my god! All right, so all right, I'm gonna start this big big picture here. There's a lot of shit that's going on in college football. Yes, there's a lot of issues. The game is going to look the, the sport of college football in ten years is going to look unrecognizable, in my opinion. One of the issues, though, if Alabama wins. A national championship with this team that they put out this year, that is a huge red flag because this is not even close to the best national Alabama team of the past 10 of, of the of this of the next David era, let's say. Uh, Honestly, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go out on a limb. I don't give a shit anymore. It is probably closer to this first team than any of the national champions that um that they've had. It is just a weird team that has just accumulated too much talent to lose enough games. Like I, I said it right before we jumped on, right? I was like the, the comparison point I made was like the Kelly Bryant Clemson team. If that Kelly Bryant Clemson team never had to play Alabama in the playoffs, yes. that like, that's how you end up with this Alabama team in the national title game is because they got to play Cincinnati. Like I can be sold on the fact that if they had played, if they had played Michigan, that Michigan might be playing Georgia yep. in a national championship. Game. Ohio state. They beat them. Ohio state. They, yeah, Oklahoma Ohio, might beat them. Yeah. Especially, yeah, especially like Oklahoma when they're playing, the way they looked against Oregon was like, okay, yeah. they've kind of put everything kind of back in order offensively and defensively. Dude, that team could have beat them. Clemson, Clemson maybe could have beat them this year. If you get that yes. one game from DJ. I, I would not have been blown away. I wouldn't no. have been blown away. If you get competent DJ play with the way that their defense looked when it was locked in, like, yeah, that team could have beaten them. We saw Texas A&M beat them and Auburn basically hand them the game back. I, I could see Pickett and Pitt could beat them yeah like it and all of that and it, it sounds so dumb to say this because i and I, I keep trying to caution myself against going out and saying what i really wanted to say about how this game is going to play out <laughs> because it is just so possible I, I can see the world where i say all of these things about what alabama is not and then they go out and they boat race georgia again because know, maybe they man. maybe they just got them sorted out yeah you know because Bama does do some good things. What, what we're saying about no, them, we're, not to say that they yeah. did not merit, you know, an opportunity to play in the playoffs. They were 11 and one and they finished the year as one of the four best teams is what it is. For sure. Um, but yeah, when I'm looking at them and watching Cincinnati just run like regular old twists and stay in the face of Bryce Young and see Bryce Young struggle with pressure, um, you know, and obviously you have the turnover forced on, on one of those stunts in his face. Um, basically, Brian Robinson being all all the offense that they had to rely on in order to make this happen for them. I just I'm not impressed with what I'm seeing, man. I'm not impressed it's, with what I'm seeing. And to your point, like I kind of need Georgia, the team with like the 80 percent blue chip ratio to go out and win the national title. So that way I, I can rationalize that by saying like, OK, the team that was clearly more talented than everybody in every game except for one, you know, for all but 60 minutes of the season going out and winning the title. That makes sense. I got no problem with that. But for this Bama team to look the way that it's looked at different points in the season, not just in their loss, but against Tennessee, against LSU, against Auburn, like I mentioned, against Cincinnati. Uh, no, that, that team can't win. That team can't win. Sorry. I, I won't accept it. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's what it is. And, and they haven't at the beginning of the year, they weren't really great on defense. And Bryce Young was kind of carrying them a bit, and then they've kind of they've kind of flipped over and become not great on offense. And then and then that's kind of been like, man, you know, the issue with this team is that it's so reliant on Bryce Young being a superhuman player, and 
there have been long stretches, and the Cincinnati game is one of them, but there have been long stretches. The Auburn game comes to mind 100% where he hasn't been that Superman player, and they've been horrible on offense. So that that scares me. I think, you know, what Cincinnati was able to do to them on the ground is interesting because I think at halftime of that game or after that game, we both, you know, without having rewatched the film, we both said, hey, you know, the way Cincinnati, and I saw other people tweeting about this on, on Twitter too, but it was like the way people, the way Cincinnati wants to play run defense, which is quickly getting guys penetrating into gaps and, and coming from different angles. And I was like, well, you know, it's, uh, they, don't, they don't have the talent. They're just getting washed away. And then all that stuff is happening. And honestly, they were getting in the backfield. They were having really good success on the runs, getting in the backfield. And Brian Robinson made plays. I, I don't even know what else to say. Like, there were guys in the hole that he beat one-on-one in whatever way. And that, to me, was like, you know, the biggest difference in that game. So if they're, if that's happening again, uh, and again, we, we, we did see, and I'm going to have to rewatch the Georgia-Alabama SC Championship game, but like if that's happening again where – and Georgia plays defense in, against the run on a completely different uh, spectrum. But um, – if that's happening again, Nicobe Dean and Tinsdale and all these guys, they're not missing those tackles, man. No, no. And like, so specific to the scheme that you were mentioning, right? Like Cincinnati does like to play up the field and they want to use those overhangs to kind of fold in behind them to basically clean up the play if they don't get a TFL. And a lot of the stuff, like at first I thought that it was just kind of bad schematically or a bad matchup for them schematically. But to your point, like there's a lot of snaps where they force the ball to bend back. The overhang is right there. And you just whiff. Because yeah. running back is better than your overhang. Oh, and there was one where he just cut it all the way back and just kept running away kept to running. the sideline. Yeah, like just kept running. nobody home. The safety was like, well, I, I can't, I can't catch it. this guy. Yeah, I can't, I can't catch, catch him. him. So yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of that in the game. And how do you – it's kind of hard to properly evaluate, um, you know, carry over from one game to the next. And that was my biggest thing. I saw some people kind of talk about, like, what their takeaways from the games were. And my whole thing was like – my big takeaway is that Alabama is the exact same up and down offense that has been all season long. And we'll get to the other semifinal game, but basically it's that Georgia is the same machine that has been for all games except for one. And it just, it bothers me to no end that the one game that they didn't look like a machine against uh, what ends up being the team that they have to see again. Yeah. So now I'm questioning myself and whether or not I have the courage of my own convictions on this, but everything all year long has been telling me this is the most talented team they're going to go win the national title. And I do still feel that way. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that for Alabama, you know, offensively is really what matters for them. And if Cincinnati could basically get out of that first opening script struggles where they couldn't get matched up to guys. And yeah. Because after that, issues. they were good. Like we they were locked we made, in. We, everyone on Twitter said the same thing. Oh my God, look at how smart Alabama is. They're going on these bunches and they're getting these right. picks and rubs. And then after the, after like 10 minutes, it was over. Like they couldn't do Yeah, anything. it was a wrap. <laughs> like the second the Cincinnati kind of loosened up coverage wise, like it, I think that really what, what hurt Bama was that Cincinnati was able to pour so many resources into getting first down stops by like sending pressures, playing zone coverage, not getting caught giving away some of these layups that they were, that every time they got into second long, second and long or second and uh, seven-ish, six and seven-ish or third and long or third and obvious, like, and you're able to run these stunts, these long developing stunts where you're still playing like tight coverage or playing with a lot of depth and zone coverage because you know they got to get the ball to the sticks or beyond. Like that was really bothering Bama in a way that I maybe was not expecting. And then it just kind of reminded me of the A&M game. It reminded me of the Auburn game, which is like, oh, yeah, when Bryce Young is not being a freak of nature and avoiding pressure, like it's hard to operate as a quarterback under these circumstances. Which he did in the first Georgia game. And then you have to ask yourself that question. Is that something that he's doing in terms right, of is that real traits? or is that a one game? Is it exactly? Is that is that just something that he's doing because the matchup favors him? Like his body type versus the versus the the, the arms of the Georgia linebackers? Like I don't think so. I don't. Like, there's no. Like, it's nothing specific. It just happened in one of those games, just like it if, happened in in a bunch of other games this season. And if, I'm if it doesn't happen again, 
if I'm Dan Lanning and I'm Kirby Smart and I'm looking at Bama, I'm basically going to say, well, well, if I want to make sure that this guy doesn't break out of sacks, you know, I'm going to put on him my two linebackers who don't ever miss tackles. Uh, so I would not be surprised if we see Georgia basically live in dime, get into mm. all of their different looks where they can get Dean and you get your you get Carter on the inside. You know, you don't have to worry like this might not be a big Jordan Davis game. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't play a ton of snaps. I would expect them to play a whole lot of their six DB, their seven DB packages and try to get these linebackers as the twisters, the loopers, the stunt guys where they can come free and try to wrap up Bryce Young instead of having their big guys who are really struggling in converting some of that pressure into contact on the quarterback and turning those into sacks or QB hits. So that's kind of what I think the next game will come down to. We'll obviously have an opportunity to talk about it um, in, the, in the coming podcast. Um, but that's kind of what I'm looking at if I'm Georgia and I, I just go and I'm watching like, oh, Alabama ran the ball and that looked nice. And then you watch Georgia play Michigan. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You literally cannot run the football on this team at all. I don't think that the relying on Brian Robinson to keep this offense on schedule is something that's going to um, carry over from one game to the next. And that that's concerning if you're a Bama fan. I wonder, I'm playing hindsight is 2020 here, but I wonder if a 10 nothing in the SEC championship game, if Georgia doesn't bust that coverage with the weak safety and Jamison goes for 60, if, if, if Georgia just wins the game, if Georgia just scores another touchdown, makes it 17 nothing, and then that's it. And even, that was a bust. And honestly, bigger than that, even if you want to give them that, like if you don't throw the pick six when you're down like 10 or whatever to yeah. put the game out of reach, because Georgia was moving the ball in the second half. Like the second that they realized that there was nobody on Alabama that could guard Brock Bowers or Darnell Washington, like there was big trouble for Bama defensively. Um, and George Pickens looks all the way healthy. Some of their younger receivers that caught some of those explosive balls from Bennett – they also look pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll see whether or not they're going to be able to protect um, as well. Like they handled, I, I thought that they handled Hutchinson and Ojabo oh, like God. extremely well, kind of dominated well. them at, at different points. And a lot of that is helped by their ability to run the ball. So the biggest thing for me is I don't think that Georgia's going to blow the pressures as often as they did. And I yeah. also think that they're not going to be in a game where you're going to ask Destin Bennett to throw 48 passes, which is I think what he threw in the, in the SEC title game either. Um, you know, like I think a little bit more reliance on White on James Cook will uh, will probably help them out a bunch. And I, I think that I feel pretty good about my feeling that this is still the team to beat in college football right now. Yeah, uh, I guess let's go quickly before we get out of here to the Georgia Michigan game. You know, when I was watching that game, that what Todd Munkin was able to do to put Stetson Bennett in favorable situations throughout the whole game was as as good as you're going to get from a play calling perspective and you saw them time and time again trying to to attack when Michigan was in in any split field coverage because they they felt like they could always get an advantage um really with with the tight ends down the field um and you saw it right away really good setup to get into that double tight end um actually they're in 13 personnel but putting the two tight ends uh Washington and Bowers to the like alone by themselves on the backside, attached to the line, attached to the mm-hmm. to the offensive line, and then run that run that scissors type concept, knowing that they were going to get Michigan in a cover two type look, and that's and that's the route that everyone's running these days against cover two, where you got the corner to make the corner route to make the corner back think that that's what he's getting, and he sits there underneath it, and then you and then you run the corner go. Right. Uh, and get it down the field and then bend it through a catchable football, not a great football, a catchable. But you saw some other plays where every time they got split field, you had Darnell Washington down the middle. You had some other plays like that. Uh, they even tried to get James Cook on that pipe route, you know, that double mm-hmm. mirrored smash pipe route. But Michigan happened to be in cover one that play. And, then and catching him with the wheel later on in the game, basically by going to that kind of nub or that kind of short, yeah. that short look, you know, to the boundary and being able to rub rub the linebacker off and get a guy down the field. So they were able to scheme up, I think, some really good looks to be able to, A, like you said, avoid – To make sets and Bennett look Bennett, good. Exactly. You avoid Bennett having to actually deal with the pressure. Yeah. And then a lot of the other times where they were still trying to push the ball down the field and weren't trying to, like, scheme that stuff up as far as, like, the route combinations, it was a lot of play-action fakes, which were helped by the fact that they were able to run the ball downhill – 
on the edge. So you got to honor it as an edge player. And now that opens up space for them in the passing games while your quarterback is dropping back. They had a, they had a, a couple nice like pitch plays to the weak side, which were honestly ended up being like weak side option type plays without the quarterback really reading it. And they were able to get those two big bodies because they were in that like double nub set, whatever, with a tie with Bowers and Washington. All of a sudden, they don't have to block the defensive end because he's quote unquote being red and they can go and get to um, the second level. Um, and then the play that really maybe took the sale. Well, one of the plays that took the sales out of Michigan's uh, Michigan's uh, attack uh, was they motion. Was it which running back was it? Was it Cook? I think it was Cook. They motion Cook to all the way to the wide side of the field. They get the matchup they want. You know, they see that it's a linebacker on them. They run the sluggo. They run the double move to get a touchdown. I've actually noticed that. It's like finally, you know, for so long, it was just like, hey, we're going to motion the running back out of the backfield. We're going to go into empty. And really all we're saying is, hey, uh, telling the quarterback, hey, you know, if, the, if he knows, if, he, if the linebacker runs with him, it's man. If, he, if everyone bumps over its own and then we're going to work our whatever concept we have. I'm really noticing a lot of double moves by that running back on the linebacker because all these guys are super receivers now. And that's a matchup you love. Now you got to throw it to the field sometimes. You can do it to the weak side too. Right. You got to throw it to the field, but take that matchup all day. You're getting one-on-one and they, and they hit it for a big play. So I thought it was a really good game plan by Munkin to, to keep it easy for Stetson Bennett and everything kind of came off. And you're hoping that you can get another game plan like that because, as we've seen, Stetson – you don't want Stetson to have to work through progression, especially against an Alabama team. Yeah. Um, but besides that, I thought it was a really good game plan. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything else to add from there. Perfect. You know what I have to add? What's that? Um, the Two High Podcast is sponsored by Manscaped. Cheers to 2022 and resolutions you can actually keep. How great upgrading your grooming routine for the new year. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to make the ball drop into the 2022, uh, into making 2022 the cleanest ever. Set your first New Year's resolution with good intentions and join the 4 million people who worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use promo code PFF for 20% off plus free shipping. All right. It's New Year, new me. This year, take your grooming to the next level with their Performance Package 4.0 and brand new Ultra Premium Body Wash. Inside the Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0, electric trimmer that is designed to trim hair on loose skin with the advanced skin-safe technology that reduces cuts and nicks all over. It also comes equipped with the 4000K LED spotlight that will shine a light to the promised land that 2022 looks to be. And the new product that needs no introduction, the Ultra Premium Body Wash from Manscaped, solves all three uh, for the solves all three issues for the perfect addition to your daily grooming routine. But in the shower, the body wash smells great too. It cologne infused with aloe vera and sea salt. Wow, to keep your skin feeling nice and moisturized, kick discomfort and poor hygiene to the curb. Uh, this year and use the best tools for the job. Whether your resolution is to work out more or travel to new new places, be sure to travel to manscaped.com for our exclusive offer. That's 20% off and free shipping with promo code PFF at manscaped.com. 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com. New year, new, new me in 2022 with Manscaped. All right, um, we will see you guys uh later this week with a special guest and um sure. for me and Deontay uh, that's about it Peace.